New music, new trailer, that means a new series. Turn to Mark. If you don't have a Bible, there's one down the center aisle of seats, and underneath that seat is a Bible. And uh, Mark is going to be around 582. Father, we thank you for the day. Thank you for the gathering of your church and for your word. Lord, there's a lot of places we could be this Sunday. We could be sleeping. We could be eating brunch with family and friends. We could be having cul-de-sac fun. We could be with half of Kingstown right now at Wegmans, shopping for the rest of the week. But we're here, uh, which in and of itself says several things. Firstly, it says we, we want to obey you in the gathering of ourselves. And so we say that out loud. Lord, we need you. We need to hear from you. We need to sense your presence. God, we need to hear your words of life for our lives that we might live them unto you. Uh, I've learned that in a transit community like, uh, like DC Metro, it's good to give us a varied appetite of Old, New Testament, uh, the Tanakh, the first, you know, first five books of, of Moses, the, the writings, the prophets, the Old, you know, Old, Old Testament, New Testament. So that's really why we're, we're doing that. When you start a new book, what you want to know is who the author is. And so let's take a couple minutes and, and talk about that. Uh, this book is attributed to a man named Mark. Actually, his name is John Mark. He's not one of the original 12 disciples. Uh, Mark actually did not have a close relationship with Jesus at all. He had a closer relationship with Paul and Barnabas. Later, he would have a closer relationship with the apostle Peter, who, of course, had a very intimate relationship with Jesus. Mark was born in Jerusalem to an affluent family. We learn in the book of Acts that Mark's family were supporters of the early church. In Acts 12, it says that the, the early church came to pray in John Mark's mother's house. His mother's name was, was Mary, and they likely, because they were affluent, not just hosted the church, but probably supported them monetarily as well. At some point, Mark joined the missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. He didn't stay with them very long. We're not, we're not sure how long he stayed with them, but it wasn't very long. He left early to go back to Jerusalem, and there was a little bit of scrutiny and controversy in him leaving, so much so that his leaving caused Paul and Barnabas to separate. Uh, Barnabas would go on and, and have John Mark as a partner going and um, starting churches, uh, and then Paul would pick up Silas, and eventually he would pick up Timothy. Uh, we know from, uh, from the New Testament that Paul and John Mark somehow reconciled. But here's, the, here's the, 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 the more important part about John Mark's path. Later, he comes alongside Peter. And through Peter, in his time with Peter, he learns uh, really probably all the things about Jesus that he had not heard from Paul and, and Barnabas. Uh, he... Um, thought so much of what Peter was telling about Jesus and the intimate relationship that Peter had with Jesus that he starts to write things down primarily to encourage and strengthen the church that was at Rome. This was a, a Jewish church and, uh, and he was writing to a Jewish audience. So in a sense, Mark's gospel uh, are the words that he gleaned from the apostle Peter's preaching. So we could really say Mark's gospel is, pre is, is Peter's gospel. Uh, and many would say that when you read Mark's gospel, it's as if you're hearing Peter. If you break out some of Peter's writings, his, his sermon in Acts 2, it sounds very much like Peter is speaking to us. Scholars say John, uh, John Mark's gospel was the earliest gospel. In fact, when you read uh, the synoptic gospels of, Mark, uh, of Matthew and Luke, 
and you read some of the same incidents, pretty much the same, some, some of the same words and wonder why are they similar. Uh, what's happening is, firstly, the Holy Spirit is working through men to tell the story of Jesus in similar ways and sometimes differing ways, but, but more so, they contain the same stories and some of the same material because they were gleaning from Mark. So as Mark begins to pen his historical theology, his bi biography of Jesus, Mark is primarily concerned with this main idea. He wants people to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's what Mar Mark is trying to convey to us. And we will read those. We've already read it in the very first verse of, uh, of his gospel. But along with that, he wants us to know that Jesus came, that he served that he suffered, that he died, that he rose again as a suffering servant of the Lord. And because he's writing to a Jewish audience, he's connecting that back to what the prophets have, what the prophets promised about the Messiah that was to come. And so um, what Mark is going to do is unpack this idea of who Jesus is and what he came to do uh, in the short details of his gospel. There's really two main ideas I want to present to you this morning from this, uh, this, the, what Mark is, what I'm calling the introduction to his gospel. Uh, and the two things that I think pop out at us are foundational, I think, for us in terms of learning. Uh, it's, it's foundational for this series. It's foundational for us in understanding what John Mark is trying to help us understand. But I think it's foundational for us as Christians of, of knowing, uh, knowing more about Jesus and being transformed by him. And the first thing is the proclamation of the gospel. Look at verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Notice in these first few verses, it doesn't open up like a typical story. It doesn't say once upon a time, time, like, it, I mean, this isn't fiction. Um, this is a biography of Jesus, but more importantly, it's historical theology. This is fact that he's giving us. Mark doesn't even give us, like the other synoptic gospels, Matthew and Luke, he doesn't give us a birth narrative of Jesus. Mark just gets right down to it and simply says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And, and in essence, what he's saying is, this is what I'm getting ready to tell you about. And he's going to talk to us about Jesus. Every word here in this first verse is pregnant with, with meaning. He says, beginning, because it should remind you of Genesis. How does Genesis start? In the beginning, God, right? God does some things. And again, Mark is writing to a Jewish audience. And it's as if he's saying, like, right away, he's, he's intentionally telling them, his audience, I'm going to tell you something new and exciting that has happened, but it's not disconnected from what you perhaps already know that has happened. It's in the same line of that. He says, in the beginning, um, this is the beginning of the gospel. If you've been in church for a little bit, you've heard that word gospel. It simply means a message of good news. It also means joyful tidings. At Christmas, we sing songs of joyful tidings and salvation. You, I remember singing songs like that with those similar words. Did you even know that you were talking about the gospel when you say those words? That's what that really means. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's who, that's who this gospel is about. It's about Jesus, the person. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. It means anointed one or Messiah. The one that was prophesied would come. He's saying he's here. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. This is uh, John Mark's favorite title for Jesus. You'll see him use that title, Son of God, over and over throughout his gospel. And Son of God, the, the title reveals Jesus' unique relationship with God the Father. So um, 
I mean, as he's started in on, on his take of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, Mark hasn't, um, he hasn't wasted any words. He's not going to use a lot of words. And that's really how he introduces us to his gospel. Uh, if you were to write an email, and I mean, how do we get people to open our emails? Like, like for example, in my, like, I, I have two primary email accounts. I'm, I'm going to judge whether I'm going to open your email by the subject line, right? Okay? I, I hate to tell you. I, I, that's what, but y'all do that too, don't you? I mean, y'all highlight and delete in a second. Fortunately, you never highlight, delete that transit email that you get from me every week, do you? Right. I should come up with some original titles. Like, I don't know. Open this or I'm going to kill you. <laughs> You're a military crowd. You, you would open it if I said that, wouldn't you? All right. So Mark is doing the same thing. He is making sure that we're going to open this email. He says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because of the audience that he's writing, if they saw that in the, in the subject line of an email, even if they didn't see the very first line like we can sometimes do in our, in our, on our desktops or on our phones, they would have opened it because it would have caught their attention. It would have been a subject that would have pulled us in. It would have made us take a seat and we would have wanted to listen. But here's the thing that Mark is trying to get us to, at least in the first half of his introduction. It's this idea of the gospel. We use that word a lot, don't we? Churches, Christians. Um, I mean, it's the catch word. Gospel center is the catch word for, for churches and pastors. And, and, and it's like Christianese, almost like, almost like the amount of times you see gluten-free when you walk through the, walk through the, gar, uh, the, the grocery store. It's everywhere. Like, like we're going to buy the product because it says gluten-free. And we sometimes use gospel or gospel-centered like that, too. What do you think about when you hear the word gospel? I've already told you what the meaning of it is. But perhaps you're here today and like, I've, I've, no, I don't go to church. I've never heard that word. But, I, I mean, I do remember the, like, the musical Godspell. Is that what it's talking about? I mean, it's, it's kind of close. Kind of, well, yeah, not really, but kind of close. Some of you might think of salvation. Some of you might think of... Uh, obviously, good news. Some of you with a little bit of uh, Christian history in you might think of the Reformation. I mean, the Reformation was a product of them thinking differently about the good news, the, the, the gospel. And really, all those w might be partially right in terms of an answer. And even if you sat down and he's like, you know what, I have no idea of what it means, what the gospel means. Here's what Mark means. By mentioning gospel, Mark is not just centering us on the idea of the message of good news. He wants us to understand this idea of proclamation. That's what he's doing here in the beginning of his gospel. He is proclaiming the gospel. A lot of times we associate gospel with religion, but the, the, the word gospel and its origins are completely secular. It, this, this is a, a Roman Greek word that they would have used. It's the Greek word euangelion. It's the word that they would use to announce the birth of a king, the birth of a new king, a, you know, a baby emperor that was going to grow up and one day take the throne. They would, they would use this word to announce a great military victory that they had won in battle. Really, the, the Romans would use this to, uh, to announce, to proclaim anything significant, anything, something magnificent or important that had happened that they wanted the whole empire to, to know about. And what they would do is they would get a scribe, he'd write it down, the, and whatever that handwritten material was, manuscript or whatever, they would give it to a, a herald, and that herald would either be on foot, just running, 
or he'd be on a horse and they would go throughout the empire and they would spread the word of what had happened. They would use this word gospel to describe it, euangelion. It was the proclamation of joyful tidings, that something wonderful, something great had happened, that it was worth announcing. They would announce it with great joy. And that's what Mark is doing. Um, interestingly, although Mark is using a Roman word, a Greek word, he's conveying a thought to that audience who were in Jerusalem under Roman control, and they would have understood the Roman meaning of, of gospel, of euangelion, but Mark actually has in mind not the Romans when he's thinking of gospel and heralding, proclaiming good news. He's thinking of Old Testament. That's where he would have gotten his idea of what the gospel was. And that really is the connection that we see in verse two and three. Mark strings together two quotes from Old Testament prophets, one Malachi in verse two, and then he quotes Isaiah notably in verse three. And he says this, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And so, I mean, I'm going to make a huge claim here, but Isaiah is probably one of the most important books in all the Bible, Old and New Testament. Definitely in terms of um, how the New Testament is framed, every New Testament book, every New Testament book is influenced by the prophecies of Isaiah. There are some scholars that would tell us, that they, they call Isaiah, uh, actually it's the early church fathers, call Isaiah the mini Bible because if you look back in your Bible, Isaiah has 66 chapters. How many, how many books does our Bible have? 66. Others would call it the fifth gospel because of the things that Isaiah presents that he prophesies about. He, he prophesies about, about sin and restoration and hope. He talks about new heavens and creation coming down. He talks about God for, God's forgiveness to the people that he loves. All these themes emerge in Isaiah's prophecies. And part of what Isaiah is doing is he's writing to a group of people who are in exile. They've been kicked out of the land that, that they knew were theirs, and they've been, they've been put into slavery. They've been defeated, thrown into slavery by foreign nations because of their sin. God had told them to do some things. They refused to do them. And what did God do? He caused them to be conquered and put them in slavery. And so their exile really is God's doing. And I mean, how would you feel if you had been exiled? Whether you, I mean, whether you uh, sinned uh, or on purpose or not, I mean, you'd be discouraged. You'd be tired and so Israel is in this predicament. They're not only tired and discouraged, they're waiting. They have been disciplined as a people for their sin, and they're waiting for that discipline to end. And it's in Isaiah 40, these same words that we see in the beginning of, of Mark's gospel, that they hear good news. They hear the gospel from Isaiah that they're longing and their waiting is about to end. And you got to see this. Turn to Isaiah. I'm going to spend more time here than I need to. But these are, these are important words. This is, what is, this is what was called um, uh, the, the whole counsel of God. So the, the Bible uh, explains itself. The, the, the Old Testament um, previews the New. The New Testament is 
uh, is influenced by the old. And this is a great example of that. So Isaiah 40, if, you have, if you're with the Pew Bible, it's going to be around page 300 and something. Isaiah 40, we're going to look at a few, a few verses here. This is what Isaiah is saying to uh, the, the nation of Israel. Of course, they're exiled, and he's bringing a word of proclamation and comfort to them. Comfort my, uh, comfort, comfort my people, says God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord, from the Lord's hand, double all her sins. A voice cries out. And so this is, here's the herald crying out. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Verse six, a voice cries, and I, shall, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but, sh but the word of the Lord, uh, as Peter would say in his, his writings, will stand forever. And then we get to the part where uh, we're reminded of the good news. Verse 9, go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. What's that word? Gospel. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Gospel again. Lift it up. Fear not. And here's the message he's supposed to bring. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like, shep like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Of course, I could keep going on, but these are the, these are the, the, the impactful words of Isaiah, and he's basically telling 400 years before it happens, 700 years before it happens, um, everything that's going to unfold in the sense of this herald coming and the one who would come after him. And so Isaiah is, is John Mark's reference for the good news. What are we reading in Isaiah chapter 40? We're reading good news. And this is what was on Mark's mind. And we know that because he's quoting Isaiah directly in verse two and three. And, and what, he what he has specifically on his mind is that God is coming. Can you imagine that? These people have been waiting for hundreds of years and you have someone that just shows up out of the blue and says, God is coming. And that would have been good news for them. It was good news in Isaiah 400 years before that, but it's definitely good news for them. God is coming. The herald says, clear the way for him. Make a way for God himself to come. And he's going to come firstly as a judge. And so you need to be, be prepared for that. But he's also going to come to, uh, he's going to be gracious to his people. He's going to pardon their sin. He's going to lead his lambs. He'll lead them, as it were, into a new exodus, a period where he would deliver them all over again, deliver them from their sin, deliver them as in healing them, deliver them as in calling them to himself. And I mean, this is what these people were longing for. For God to come and establish his reign and restore all things to the way that they were meant to be, at least the way that they thought they were meant to be. And so when John Mark writes his subject line 
in the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, this is what he had in mind, that the anointed Son of God, Jesus himself, Jesus the Christ, was going to come and he was going to bring rule and reign and power and love and justice and forgiving grace with him. That, that Jesus, this son of God, this son of man, he came not to be served, but to serve. And that he would give his life eventually as a ransom for many people. And the people of God were longing and waiting and they were yearning for this for hundreds of years. And this is what Mark is heralding. This is what his gospel is all about. And so Mark tells us a stranger is coming. Later we'll learn it's going to be one like Elijah, the prophet Elijah. He tells us that, that this herald is, this, this messenger is going to herald a message that everybody who has ears to hear is going to hear. And he's promised that his, to his people that it's about to happen. And in verse four, he tells us who it happens through. Verse four, John appeared, John the Baptist, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, so the focus here is not just the messenger God said would herald the good news, obviously John the Baptist, but Mark, Mark here, John Mark is highlighting the place that God would, would, would lend that message to. Where's, where's the prophecy going to happen? And it's almost subtle in the text here, but he's talking about the wilderness. You see the word wilderness in this text? It's almost hidden. This is important because it's an important theme in the Bible, and we could skip right over it. But the wilderness is the, is the scene that we're in. John the Baptist shows up in the wilderness, and when the people come to him to hear him, to get baptized by him, they're coming to the wilderness. And I don't know if you remember just like the wilderness scenes in the Old Testament, but they were no joke. I mean, think about all that happened in the wilderness. The wilderness was a familiar place for God's people. It's where he led them. It's where he disciplined them. It's where he humbled them. It's where he showed grace to them. It's where he tested them to see if their faith was real. Think about, I mean, what do you think about when you think of, of wilderness? I think of, of God delivering the people out of Egypt through the Red Sea. And then where they go, when they came out on the other side of the Red Sea, they went to the wilderness. Eventually, they would go to Mount Sinai. God would give the covenant. And of course, a lot of things happened after that. God took them to the brink of the promised land. He sent 12 spies in. Only 10 thought they could do it. Uh, two thought they could do it. The other 10 said, ah, oh, there's giants in the land. Oh, by the way, there are some nice fruit. They, and so what, what did God do? God said, you're being disobedient. I told you to go take the land. And then he caused them to walk around in the wilderness for 40 years. Those were some interesting years for Israel because a number of things happened. They were disciplined to not be able to go into the promised land, that land flowing with milk and honey, and were relegated to the wilderness. But even in that discipline, God fed them. He caused manna to, to just fall down from the sky. Eventually, they, they cried out for meat. And he caused quail to just fly in and they were able to have, have meat. Deuteronomy tells us that their clothes did not wear out. Forty years walking in the desert. They did not, their clothes didn't wear out, their shoes didn't wear out. Parents, wouldn't you just love that? <laughs> that for all the years of upbringing of your, your, your kids, they, they wouldn't have flutter jeans and they wouldn't come home one day with just holes in their shoes. Those were miracles of God, that even though God was disciplining Israel in the wilderness, 
It was a place of his care, of his concern, of his love for them. There's so much symbology here. And so John the Baptist's ministry starts in the wilderness, and it's meant to signify to these people of God, I mean to Israel, the same imagery that they're being back and back really to uh, an idea of a second exodus. They're being prepared. He's going to tell them to prepare your hearts to meet the Lord. And what he means is almost like Israel was, was sent through the wilderness and God prepared them to be an army that would eventually go into the promised land where they would dwell with the Lord. He's saying that same thing here. And so the people have been waiting for this moment for years. And, and John gets this, the, the privileged role of being the messenger, the one like Isaiah, uh, Elijah, who gets the people ready. And, and so here's his interesting point. How does John get the people ready to meet the Lord? He confronts their sin and calls them to repent. Here's the second thing that I think is important for us to understand from our text. Repentance and faith. Repentance is, is turning away from our sin and towards the Lord in faith. Repentance is turning from our sin and towards the Lord in faith. And that's what John means. That's what Isaiah means when he says, prepare the way for the Lord. And in your life, preparing your heart for the Lord will always require you to turn from your sin and turn towards the Lord in faith. One of the reasons why I think many people never come to faith in Jesus is we never turn from our sin and instead turn to the Lord in faith. You know, a lot of people come to church, but there's very few people that also commensurately leave their sin. Because to come to the Lord means so much more than just getting here, singing some songs, doing whatever we do in liturgy, grabbing your stuff, and then leaving at the end. That's going to church. Preparing your heart for the Lord is actually something else. I think preparing the way for the Lord means that you come to worship, that you're impacted by the word, and where your life does not line up with God's word that you're being taught, you confess that as sin. In other words, we hear the gospel, we hear the words of God, and we have to respond. And the typical response from us should be, Lord, you're holy, I'm not. God, you're, you're good, and I'm not. In fact, I'm probably st stressing it by even saying I'm not, because it's not that we're just not good, I'm going to stretch your theology here. It's, it's, we're actually bad. And so even after you come to faith in Jesus, you're still not good. You're still bad. Why? Because we don't have the wherewithal in us to, to merit God's favor. We can't be that good. We're still bad. And of course, folks, that's why you need Jesus. The Bible tells you that when you come to faith in Jesus, when you turn from your sin and turn towards the Lord in faith, that God loves you, he forgives you, and he gifts you, he imputes to you his righteousness. And honestly, there's some change of heart that happens, but for the most part, at least initially, there's, there's not a lot that's changed. God is just loving you despite your sin. And he does that because of the person and work of Jesus, him dying in your place on the cross. It was this great exchange that happens in the gospel. And so we should always be preparing the way for the Lord. And that's John's way of saying, get your heart ready. How do we get our hearts ready? Well, 
we get it ready by coming to, to, to gather with the, with the church. And so as we gather weekly, we are getting our hearts ready by confessing our sin and telling the Lord all those things that, I, Lord, I, I wish I were here, I wish I were there, but I'm not. This is where I am. Uh, forgive me. And God's going to meet you where you are. And then you turn to the Lord in faith that he is going to not only forgive you, but give you all the things that you need despite your sin. And in your daily worship, your devotions, you give your heart to the Lord. You prepare the way for the Lord. And really, I mean, in the whole life of the church, we prepare uh, our, our, our hearts for the Lord by turning away from sin all those sins that you are aware of, you turn away from those and you turn in faith to the Lord. Perhaps you're here today in the congregation and you've never become a Christian because you've never turned away from your sin and turned in faith to Jesus. And of course, the opportunity is there for you to do that today. Sometimes we don't want to turn to God because we love our sin too much. And that, that's a hard word to say. I mean, what do you mean I love my sin too much? You love your sin too much. You don't want to let it go. And I'm not judging you. I'm not criticizing you. If anybody in this room that calls himself a Christian, we have been, perhaps we are still in that same predicament. Sometimes we love our sin too much. And, and, and why am I saying that? I'm not saying it to make you feel bad. I'm saying that because that's the predicament that Israel was in. They loved their sin too much. And so John heralds this message, God is coming. In fact, he yelled it. Think about somebody coming over your house. What do you do when you know someone is coming over your house? Well, yeah, it, it depends. It, doesn't it depend? It, depend, it depends on the kind of rapport you have with them, what kind of influence you're going, going to try and make with that person. If it's somebody that you know, you might not do anything. But generally, if we know somebody is coming over, we're going to clean up. You're going to spruce some things up, spray some spray. You're going to sweep a little bit, get the vacuum cleaner out. You're going to hide the things, at least in the back room, where nobody's coming. At least that's what we do for community group. <laughs> Check it out. All right. If the president of the United States is coming to your house for show, right, you're going to clean up a little bit. I read an article this week just in preparing for this. It said that wherever the queen of England goes, there's a intense smell of paint. What are they doing? They are preparing the way for her majesty to come and, and, and don their presence, right? And so here's what John is heralding for us. It, he says, one is coming who surpasses President Trump. One is coming who very far surpasses the Queen of England. In fact, he's the king of the universe. He's the king of all kings and queens. He's Jesus himself. And in fact, John actually tells us, tells, he tells Israel to do more than just get ready. He says, do more than just prepare the way for the Lord. He says, get baptized. Um, John doesn't, John Mark doesn't actually give us the, the, the practical teaching of baptism. We have to, to actually go to Paul's letters to get the, you know, what we would say is, is uh, uh, a more practical teaching of, of baptism. But this still is, is baptism in and of itself. He's talking about public identification. 
And this would be this would have been a significant moment for Israel because they would have known about ritual cleansing. They would have known about washing. Uh, this was, however, the first time they were called to identify themselves and align themselves demonstrably with the truths of a prophet. And what this particular prophet, John the Baptist, was calling them to identify with was the truth that they were sinful and that the Lord was coming and what they needed to repent. Prepare the way of the Lord. And them getting into the water was a proclamation, a public proclamation of that, uh, of that, that fact. And so we see how they respond in verse 5. They got to speed up. All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Um, you can't tell from the text. But this is like a revival like response. Scholars tell us there would have been not just hundreds, but thousands of people in the tune of 300,000 or more that dropped whatever they were doing. And they came out to the river Jordan to get baptized. They were lining all the shores. Just, not just to hear John preach like he was a, like a, a, a super preacher. They were coming because they, their hearts were pricked first, but they were waiting. They had been waiting for this message that would come and give them the message that God was coming. They were waiting for this moment. And so they came because of the conviction of their sin, but they came also because they were waiting for this proclamation that they needed to get ready. And why did they, why, did, why were they doing all this? I think, I mean, you don't, you can't see it in the text, but behind these words, they were hungry for God. Perhaps they were more hungry to hear this weird kind of a guy scream at them and proclaim the, the words of God more than we were ready, more than we were hungry to come and, and worship as a congregation this morning. I think the word that I would use there is they were desperate. They were desperate to hear from the Lord. And so you have these hordes of people wanting to respond to God. They weren't technically in exile, but I mean, they were in, in dire straits. They were in their own land. But in reality, the, the Jews in Jerusalem, they were still under Roman rule and the Romans were ruthless. They were ruthless uh, rulers over the Jews. And so here's this people of God in their own land, and they're being treated just slightly over the status of a slave. But here's the other thing. Beyond this, God hadn't spoken to Israel in years, upwards of 400 or more years. And so it had been like uh, mandatory radio silence for hundreds of years for these people. And so here they are in exile. The Romans are ruling ruthlessly over them, and they're desperate for God. They're saying, Lord, where are you? Why have you relegated us to, to being uh, under subject of, of Roman rule? Uh, don't you see our plight? When are you going to come and help us and save us? Won't you be our king again? They're, they're crying out this. And so John the Baptist coming on the scene would have been a shock to them. But then they would have recognized, ah, this is what was promised. This is what we've been waiting for. And very likely, they don't understand all that John is saying or definitely what's going to unfold as Jesus comes on the scene. But it's beginning to take some traction. Then we get to verse 6. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And so as Mark introduces his gospel, he tells us a little bit, I mean, just like a couple seconds of the story of John the Baptist. And of course, we know a little bit about John the Baptist from the other gospels. But you got to admit, John's like, he's kind of weird, right? I mean, he probably smells a little funny. He definitely dresses a little funny. And who eats locusts and honey? But 
whereas that's funny to us, it's weird to us, Israel would have looked at that and says, it's happening. This is modern day Elijah because Elijah dressed like this. Elijah talked like this. Elijah ate like this. And there's, there's, he's got to be. He's got to be the, the promised messenger that we are, are looking for. Verse 7, and he preached saying, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. What, what John Mark is writing there that John the Baptist is saying is remarkable language because what he's saying is I'm not even worthy to be Jesus' slave because a slave would be the one that would stoop down and untie somebody's sandal so that they could then uh, have their shoes washed. John is saying I'm the messenger, but the one who comes after me, I'm not even worthy to be a slave. And I think what, what what's happening here is John the Baptist is, I mean, th this is unprecedented. Because John's a big deal. In this moment, before Jesus hits the scene, really, really even after Jesus hits the scene, John's a big deal. Thousands of thousands of people are coming to John to hear him preach. I mean, and they're, they're responding to what he's saying. And John, in this moment, is conveying, I must decrease. He must increase. I mean, that's what John is doing. He's doing the, the thing that a lot of times we don't do. He's, he's deferring the attention. Even if you're an introvert, a lot of times, I mean, you at least want to be treated nicely, right? I mean, it's in us to want, to, to want the praise, to, to, to want the attention. And John the Baptist is saying, you know what? It, it, it's time. I've got a lot going on, but I'm going to def deflect the attention away from me because the one who's coming is so much more important than I. It's this, this moment is not about me. It's about Jesus. But more importantly, it's about you repenting because there's one coming who's mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not even, to take, uh, I'm not even able to take off. And of course, he's what he's talking about, who he's talking about, he's going to introduce in in. In verse 8, he says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, those charismatics and Pentecostals in the room, I know what you want to do. You want to take off your shoes. You want to run a lap around the room because you think he's talking about baptism of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues and all that stuff. And I have been, I have been Pentecostal. I have been charismatic. But that's not what he's talking about. All right. So when you hear baptism in the Holy Spirit, don't automatically think he's talking about speaking in tongues or, or a spiritual gift. That's not what's happening here. Here's what John is saying. He says, I've plunged you into the water, symbolizing an outward cleansing. But, but this guy, the guy that's coming, he's going to plunge you into the spirit of God. And it's not a special, uh, special spiritual plunging that's going to make you speak in tongues or give you a gift. It's a spiritual plunging that's going to immerse you into the life of my spirit. And you're going to and, and God himself by the spirit is going to live in you. As you confess your sin and come to Jesus in faith, he's going to live in you forever. And you don't even need to speak in tongues for that. That's what he's talking about. And so he's talking about the promise that God had made to his people, this Old Testament promise that God had given to Israel centuries ago that there'd be another exodus and God would restore his world once and for all. 
and that there'd be a time when he came to personally live with and in his people, that God has always promised to live with his people, and he would do that, except he'd do it by the Spirit. He'd do it by giving his Spirit. And so when John the Baptist says this, I mean, you can imagine that. I mean, this, what these people are thinking. It's like, oh, send him on. Who is this guy? Who, who is this guy? Bring him on. Who is this one that can give the Spirit? Can't, can't only God do that? And of course, John is talking about Jesus. And, and, and that's the message that John is heralding here. That's his message, that one is coming, and he's going to be a big deal. And I'm not that big deal, but the one that's coming is going to be he. And John is not making this message up. This is the same message that we hear from Isaiah's prophecies long ago, that God is coming. Prepare your hearts. Repent of your sins. The Lord himself is coming. There's going to be a new exodus, if you will. God is finally going to come, and he's going to fulfill his promise, his long old promise to forgive and rescue and judge and shepherd and to redeem his true people. He's going to pour out his spirit, and he's going to lead us. And they would have said, yes and amen. Let's do it. Bring him on. So that's that's Mark building up his gospel. I mean, he hadn't even gotten to the real gospel part, but, but that's him leading the way into all that he will talk about. And of course, he's going to unpack that in the 16 chapters of, of his gospel. And, and the way that Mark is building this up, these opening verses, it's meant to bring us on the edge of our seat in anticipation of the one who John is speaking about. And of course, he's talking about Jesus. And we'll learn more about him next week as Nick unpacks this next few, few verses for us. Two things and then I'll be done. Three things. Firstly, this is where the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ begins. And that's what Mark talks about in, in verse 1, right? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But particularly, where does it begin? It begins in the wilderness. Don't be afraid of the wilderness, folks. It can be a dry place. It can be a place of discipline. It can be a place of humbling. But God will meet you there, and he will sustain you. Where does God's gospel begin for, for these people? It begins in the wilderness going to prepare their hearts for the Lord, and God is going to meet them there, and he'll meet you there as well. God calling his people to repentance, that's what he does in the wilderness. God has put forth the promised Messiah, the Son of God, and as we'll see next week, that Messiah will eventually stand on behalf of the people. He's going to be tempted, he's going to go to trial, but he's going to begin a new deliverance of our hearts. He's going to call his people back to him, and he did it then, he's doing it now. Here's the second thing. This is the story that Mark, John Mark is trying to sweep us up into. As we read this narrative, it, it's easy for us to just take this stuff as information. I mean, even as I was reading this week, I'm highlighting stuff, I'm circling stuff. It's like, oh, that was a good point. That's a good point. Don't get trapped up in that. Sometimes we, we're so into highlighting and circling that we forget God actually wants to do something in us through this, not just give us information. So this is not just information for you to have that's neat, nice about John the Baptist and John Mark and Jesus. He's trying to change your life. He's trying to change your life through the proclamation of the gospel and the understanding that to prepare your hearts for the Lord, you got to turn from your sin and turn towards God in faith. And that really is my third point. What might we, 
What might we glean from these first eight verses that might transform us and change us to be less like our sinful selves and more like Jesus? And it's two things. First, it's sense of urgency. There's a sense of urgency that John Mark is giving about John the Baptist coming. He says, hey, you, you need to get ready because the Lord is coming. And he's coming firstly to judge, but then he's going to bring some grace. He's going to shepherd you. And it may not be always easy, but he really is going to be your God. And he's going to call you to be his people. But there's a sense of urgency here 2,000 years ago, and he's calling us to that same sense of urgency. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, the very thing that the sense of urgency, I mean, the message is clear. It's repent and believe. Repent of your sins. Turn towards Jesus in faith. And I know that's not an easy thing. But it's what the text is calling all of us to. And so the question is, have you aligned your heart with the truth of who Jesus is? John calls him the Christ, the son of God. This Jesus who stepped into our world, identified himself with humanity, ultimately would hang on a cross on our behalf for your sin. Do you, do you believe what John Mark is starting to say about this Jesus? And then the, obviously the opportunity is it's as simple, even though it's not simple, it is as simple as turning, purposefully turning from your sin and turning to Jesus in faith. That's how the walk begins. And secondly, and this is subliminal, but this is, is baptism. Of course, again, John doesn't unpack this like Paul will in his letters, but if you're a Christian here and you have never aligned yourself with the Bible's command to get baptized, this is your invitation. You know, a lot of times we skip this because we're shy or we're scared or we don't want to. I mean, that's, that's a little too public for me. I don't want to get wet in, from any, in front of anybody. But, but these, these New Testament Christians from this Old Testament prophet, uh, John the Baptist, they understood it. In, in order to prepare my heart for the Lord who is coming, I need to be washed on the inside and out. Okay, they only got a spiritual cleansing. What baptism is, is you identifying with, with your sin, being plunged into water, and then you coming up washed to, 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 to new life in Jesus. It's identifying publicly with him. And so, obviously, we're church planting, so we, we baptize you know, when it gets a little warmer. But here's your invitation. If you have never aligned yourself with uh, you know, a, a full immersion baptism, Listen to the words of, of, of John the Baptist here, but more important, listen to the words of the Spirit that dwells in you. And if you need to do that and you've been uh, negligent to do it, let's get it done. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this new book of the Bible that we get to get, get to go through. Lord, uh, I'm excited. I'm excited about um, walking this journey with John Mark as he introduces us to who Jesus is and what he came to do. Would you help us? Would you help us? Uh, treat this more than just information that we would put in our minds or, or, or underline and write some, no, uh, some, some notes down in our journals. But God, would you do the work of transforming us and changing us to be less like our sinful selves and more like Jesus? That's our prayer, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.